0: Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I stated at the top of the service, this is Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar year. And on Pentecost Sunday, we take time as we've had opportunities to sing and to think about the Holy Spirit and His ministry to us as the third member of the Trinity. And we celebrate, especially at Pentecost Sunday, uh, the reality that As Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he said that he would send the Holy Spirit to his people in order to lead them into all truth. So that they might know and see Christ and be transformed into his image. And so we remember that this morning and we celebrate that. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, one of the things that comes up over and over again when you read different theological texts is how the Holy Spirit is responsible for our experience in our salvation where God planned our redemption from before the world began. And Jesus accomplished that redemption in history for our sake. And it's especially the Holy Spirit that applies the work of Christ to our lives. And as we've been singing all morning, it is, what, it is He who is bringing out the character of Christ in us. And one of the things that I'm reminded of as we think about our experience of salvation is that there are some things that we can learn by simply reading it in a book. We can go to college for a myriad of subjects and there are facts that we can learn from textbooks and that can be kind of assumed into our knowledge of the world. But then there are other things that we have to learn, you might say, the hard way by experience. And I'm reminded of this A couple of weeks ago, as my wife and I were standing out uh, after the service under the tent enjoying fellowship with one another, and we ran into someone that we hadn't had a chance to catch up with in a while, and they shared with us that there were only a few more weeks until they were welcoming their first child into this world. And we were very excited for them and talking with them about what they were excited for. And my wife and I have three ch- two children and one on the way. And uh, they started asking us, you know, what are, what are some thoughts that you want to give us, some words of wisdom? And as my wife sat there talking to this couple, we tried to articulate, you know, what are some things that you should be looking forward to, or what are some things that you should be looking out for as you're welcoming your first child into the world? And as I started sharing what very little wisdom I have gleaned uh, in my parenting thus far, I began to realize that it didn't matter... How much I told this man what he needed to prepare for, he was not going to really know what it meant to be a parent until their child has arrived. And that's not just true in parenting. For those of you that have kind of grown in areas of your business, you know that there are only certain things that you can learn the hard way. In fact, one of my favorite quotes of Mike Tyson is, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And one of the things that I love about what the Apostle Paul is doing in our passage this morning is he has just spent 11 chapters in the book of Romans describing what we're going to be talking about as the mercies of God. He's been describing the gospel in all of its glory. And he's come to the end of chapter 11. And if you look back at verses 33 through 36 of chapter 11, he just kind of falls into a worshiping song. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. The Apostle Paul, after thinking about the gospel, cannot help himself from worshiping. And yet, the first words that we see in chapter 12 are, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He immediately says, all of this knowledge about the gospel is not enough. I urge you, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, not just to know about the gospel, But to experience the gospel in your lives. And what the Apostle Paul is drawing to our attention this morning is that you and I, we were created and we were redeemed by God so that we would live our lives as lives of true worship. And so that is what we're going to be looking at today as we go to Romans chapter 12. What does it mean to not just know about the gospel? But to experience the gospel in our lives. What does it actually mean to live a life of true worship? But before we dive into the text, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we especially thank you for the reminder of your gospel that we see in it. That by your spirit, you are applying the truths of Christ and his accomplished redemption in our actual lives. And so, Holy Spirit, would you please move in our hearts this morning by your word, and would you work out the character of Christ in every aspect of our lives, changing our hearts to be wholly and solely devoted to you in true worship. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So. The first thing that the Apostle Paul says that is the mark of true worship is that you need to recognize that you were created and that you were redeemed to live a life that is driven. By God's mercies. I want you to look in verse 1 here, where again, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And he stops short here, because as you continue to read throughout the Gospel, or I'm sorry, throughout Romans, what you're going to see is that the Apostle Paul has moved from describing truths to giving commands. He's moved from what we might say the indicative aspect of the Gospel, for you grammar nerds, to the imperative. He wants from now on for us to see how the gospel applies to life. But before he starts giving commands and telling us what to do, he wants to stop here and he wants these brothers in Rome to understand that if anything is going to happen in their life of true worship, it is going to start and be driven by the mercies of God. And there are two things in particular that Paul wants us to meditate on as we think about the mercies of God. The first thing that he wants us to meditate on is that in Christ, God has cleansed us from our sin. And as a result of that, he has accepted us in Christ. I want you to look here for just a moment at the second half of verse 1. Because what the Apostle Paul says here is, as we meditate on the mercies of God, the result of that is that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then there's these descriptive phrases It says, holy and acceptable to God. And I think oftentimes when we come to this passage, what we do is we end up reading this passage as if what true worship is, is presenting ourselves to God and doing things for God so that we would be holy and acceptable in His sight. We think it's the activity of coming to worship. It's the activity of obedience to His Word. That is what makes us holy and that is what makes us acceptable. And here's the problem. That is not how sacrifices work in the Old Testament. You don't bring a blemished, you don't bring a broken or a corrupt lamb to God and then say, God, I'm going to give this broken thing to you and you're going to, you know, that's going to make me holy or that's going to make me acceptable. In the Old Testament, that lamb, that goat, that bull needed to be unblemished. It needed to be, the word is holy. Holy. And that leaves us in a quandary, because if we're relying on our own merits, all we have to bring to the Lord is unholy lives. And this is why reading this sentence is so important. These are adjectives, not commands. It is describing who you are in Christ. Christ has cleansed you from your sin, which is why... Driven by the mercies of God, we can see ourselves in Christ as holy. And some of you are going to really struggle with that. Some of you are going to really struggle to actually embrace the reality that you in the eyes of God are pure, that you in the eyes of God are holy and precious in his sight because you will be thinking to yourself right now, you don't understand the sins that I have committed And you don't understand the sins that have been committed against me. I don't feel holy. I feel broken. I feel dirty. I feel corrupt. And yet this is the gospel. that We are both at one time saints and sinners because of what Christ has done. The sacrifices of our lives that we bring to the Lord because of what Christ has done. He receives us as holy. And that word receives takes us to the next word. Not only have we been made holy and cleansed by Jesus, but because of that, God has accepted you. That he is not begrudging in his receiving of your worship. He is not sad about the state of your lives. He is delighting in the fact that in Christ, you delight his eyes. He is pleased when you come to him, because he sees you as a holy and acceptable person. And as we'll talk about later, that doesn't mean that this doesn't have a transforming effect on our lives. But that is not the point of where the Apostle Paul begins, because the Apostle Paul recognizes that when we understand the gospel properly, that it is what has Christ has done for us, not what we do for God, that is what will drive our life of worship And I think perhaps the most amazing illustration of this is actually found in the gospel according to Mark. And we've been spending a lot of time in the gospel according to Mark, but I'm going to take us back for just a minute to chapter one of the gospel according to Mark, when a leper, a man who knew much about being unholy and unaccepted in the sight of the Lord, met Jesus for the first time. Here's what it says in Mark chapter one, verses 40 through 45. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper and said to the man, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged the man and sent him away at once, saying, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But the man went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but, was, but had to be out in a desolate place, and people were coming to him from every corner." The story about the leper is so remarkable because you can see in this man's life an example of how Christ's work to make him clean and Christ's work to make him acceptable before God became a driving and motivating factor in his life. He literally ignored what the Messiah said about not telling anybody because he could not contain how much God's mercy had transformed him and motivated him. He had lived much of his life completely unholy in the eyes of God and everybody else, completely unacceptable in the temple, completely unacceptable in the eyes of his fellow Israelites. And yet, because of what Jesus had done, he is now being reconciled into that community. He is now being welcomed back into God's presence. And I love that Jesus says, You go. And you offer a sacrifice in the temple, and then he says to do it, to prove to the leadership of Israel that men are being restored to the image of God they were made to be. What an amazing story this man's life is, and it's our story as well. You have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You have been accepted before God, which leads us to ask a really important question. What's driving your life What is motivating the actions in your life? Because for Christians, for those of us that have seen the gospel and meditate on the mercies of God, it is his grace that is the motivator. In whatever we do, we recognize that the grace of God comes before the law of God. That our relationship with God is restored before God calls us into a life of obedience. That was true in the book of Exodus, and it is still true today. But it, it kind of turns itself at this point for us to ask, are there other things other than God's mercy that are driving you and motivating you in your life? Is it your passion for your career and your glory in that? Is it your desire for control in your family? Is it your desire for success in your career? What is it that is the driving, motivating factor in your life? And if we can take the book of Romans as any indication of this, whatever is the driving, motivating factor in your life will point you directly to what God you worship. This is what we see elsewhere in the book of Romans. In chapter 2, Paul writes... Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and patience. Know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, God's mercy should be what is the defining motivator in our Lives, And it's as we meditate on those mercies, it is through that that we are, as the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Because not only are we being driven by God's mercies, but we are being directed by God's Spirit. I want you to turn back in Romans to look at verse 2. You'll notice in verse 2 that Paul starts to make this practical. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And that word renewal in this part of the passage is very, very important. Again, because it draws us attention to, draws our eyes to, who is doing this work. Elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Titus, Uh, The Apostle Paul says that it's not according to our works, but according to God's own mercy by the washing of regeneration and of the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That as we meditate on the mercies of God and all that he has done in Christ, we are going to start being transformed more into the image of the God in which we worship. And the Apostle Paul says that this is going to happen in two ways by recognizing the worthlessness of the world's idols and recognizing the riches of God's ways. Here's what I'll show you in the passage. Look at the beginning of verse two. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The Apostle Paul has taken a lot of time in the book of Romans to describe the type of worship that exists in our world. If you were to turn back to Romans chapter one, This is what the Apostle Paul would say is happening in the world around us. Although the world knows God, they do not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. But they have become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools because they have exchanged the glory of the Creator to worship and serve the creature. Our world is not neutral in its worship. Our world is very much committed to worshiping anything other than the true and living God. And the Apostle Paul says that it's not. Kind of neutral, even in that devotion to its own God. He has to warn the church and say, do not be conformed to the image of the world. That word conformed is like pressing a seal on wax to be able to leave an imprint. The world wants to press in on you with its idolatrous worship. You feel that every time you log onto Facebook. You feel that every time you go onto social media. You feel that when you watch the news and you feel that when you are caught up in awkward conversations in your work environments. The values and the virtues of the world are not neutral and they want to influence you. But God is saying, by the Holy Spirit, you should be able to discern the will of God and see that the idols that our culture is worshiping, idols of individualism, right, idols of secularism, these things are false gods. We cannot live as though these will bring true and lasting happiness because all they will bring is pain, suffering, and judgment. And the Holy Spirit, as he allows us to discern the will of God, gives us eyes to see the worthlessness of these idols but not just the worthlessness of the idols it's more important honestly that we're able to recognize the riches of God's ways because not only does he say do not be conformed to this world but be transformed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God That word testing is actually a word that was used in the marketplaces in the first century. And it meant people who, when selling things in the marketplace, would receive currency. And at that time, currency was copper or silver. And it was very easily kind of ground off and then used to be able to create new coins, a source of counterfeit money. And this idea of testing is what the merchants would do. They would look at a coin and they would weigh the coin to make sure that it actually lined up with what was genuine. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. By the Holy Spirit, we are able to discern between that which is counterfeit and that which is genuine. And God's will here is described as good and acceptable and perfect That word perfect is the key word because it means achieving the end for which it was intended, meaning that as we discern the will of God, we are embracing that is what we were made to do. If we're made in the image of God, accepting God's will means we are living according to the grain of how he has made us. In the book of Hebrews, it's described like this. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, they can distinguish from good and evil. That is what maturity looks like in Christ, according to the author of Hebrews. Able to look at the world and to discern this is an idol and we should avoid it. And this is what true worship of God looks like. What his good and perfect and holy will is is. And it reminds me of when I used to work at a bank. So many, many years ago, I worked uh, for a bank called Washington Mutual. And as a part of the training process, we were given a class on loss prevention. And a part of the class, we were given an opportunity to learn how to detect counterfeit bills. And so they gave us a lot of opportunity to kind of touch the genuine article. And they gave us a lot of tips on what to look for in counterfeit bills. And then they told us that when you come across counterfeit bills in the wild while you're working, what you are to do is actually confiscate that bill so that you can send it back to the federal government so it can be destroyed. And I'll never forget, there was a woman that came into the bank while I was working and came to my window and she handed me a $100 bill. And as I looked at this $100 bill, admiring it, Telling, you know, my training, working on it, I realized that this woman's money was counterfeit. Now this woman did not know that she had a counterfeit bill. But that did not matter. It didn't matter how much stock this woman put in this hundred dollar bill. It doesn't matter if she was gonna use that to pay for her bills, it doesn't matter if she was gonna spend that money on herself, that money was counterfeit and it was going to be judged as such, it was going to be confiscated and it was going to be destroyed. And it broke my heart to have to go to this woman and to tell her what you had just placed your hope in, I'm going to have to take from you and you will not actually be blessed and benefited by this $100 bill. This is the warning that Paul is warning, giving us. What type of money, what type of stock are you putting in this world Because if you are being conformed more and more to this world, and less and less like the image of Christ, less and less discerning what the will of God is, you are holding counterfeit currency, and it will be judged, and it will be taken from you, and it will be destroyed. It's weighty, and it's heavy, but what's beautiful about this is that the promise of this is that as we give ourselves to true worship, we are being directed by God's Spirit, And the way that he does that is primarily through God's word. That as we go to God's word, it is the Holy Spirit, the author of that word, and the person inside of us that illuminates our hearts to understand it. That we will be able to see that God's will is good. So who is directing your path? I'm going to phrase it a different way. Who gets to tell you what to do in your life? Who gets the the say in shaping how you interact with your spouse? Who gets to say how you interact with your children? Who gets to say what ambitions you are going to pursue or what job you have or what you do with your body? This is what is happening in this passage as we understand that to be meditating on the mercies of God eventually leads us not just to be driven by God's mercy and directed by God's spirit, but to realize that a life of true worship is one that is wholly devoted to God. And this is where the crux of the passage is, as again we go back to verse 1 and we see that the Apostle Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice which is holy and acceptable because of Christ. And this, he says, is your spiritual worship. Now, when we think of worship, oftentimes, we think about what's happening right now. We think about music, we think about liturgy, and there's a part of that that is absolutely true. But the word here for worship is actually better understood, not so much as a noun, but as a verb, as an activity of life. And in Romans chapter 1, actually, the worship of idols is described in a very similar way. In Romans chapter 1, it says, The world has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped, and here's the same word, and served the creature rather than the creator. That word served in chapter 1 is the same word that's translated here in chapter 12 as worship. It is your spiritual act of service to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I emphasize this word body because that is what the Apostle Paul is saying. We can read this and we might say to ourselves, okay, I hear you. I should live my whole life to God. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is saying, literally think about your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Your hands, your fingers, your stomachs, your eyes, your tongues... Your feet, every aspect of your body has been made holy and acceptable to God. And that is what you are to use to worship God. Going back to how people worship idols, if we look at... Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, do not, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that is your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And then he finishes that up by saying, you, your bodies are members of Christ. Your body matters because it is an aspect of what God is saving. Devotion begins in our hearts as we meditate on the mercies of God. But make no mistake, whatever is driving your life, whatever is dictating your path, it will express itself in your body. The sins that you commit in your body are showing you that you are worshiping another God, not that you are just doing something wrong. Really embrace that as you understand what it means to actually repent of your sin, to actually turn in faith to God and recognize that our hands and our eyes and our ears and our lungs and our feet, those have been redeemed by Christ So that as we follow the Holy Spirit in accordance with God's word, we might actually be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. I can't think of a better analogy of another story that we see in the gospel according to Luke of a woman who understood this principle profoundly well because of what Jesus had done in her life. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. And as I read this passage out of Luke, I'm going to take a minute to kind of change some of the language because it's not written in a way that is appropriate. It is, it's written in a way that helps us kind of feel clean about what's going on here. But listen to this in Luke chapter seven, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, that's a nice way of saying this was a prostitute. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at that table in the Pharisee's house, she brought in a flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus at his feet, this woman weeping began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and kiss his feet and anoint them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were actually a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner, again, prostitute. And Jesus answered to him, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, Say it, teacher. And so Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled both their debts. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly, Simon. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. And therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But to he who is forgiven little, loves little." And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. This prostitute understood that a life of worship begins in a heart of devotion, but is always expressed in the body. Do you hear how many times Luke used words to describe this woman's body? Her hair, her lips. She was using all of these things to honor and extol Jesus, for she was profoundly grateful for the mercy that she had received, that it just overcome her. And this woman, whose body had been used for idol worship in her town over and over and over again, was finally able to be set free from her prostitution. She was able to be made holy and acceptable in God's sight and she was able to be directed away from wickedness and idolatry and finally free to live the life that God had made her for. We need to recognize ourselves in this woman. And if you don't recognize yourself in this woman, then what God are you worshiping? This is the key to Worship to experiencing the gospel in your life. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're reminded that it's simply because Jesus became man that our lives could be redeemed. It says that when Christ came in the world, he said to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you have had no desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, And then the son of the father said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus gave his body for you. He gave his hands. He gave his feet. He gave his side for you. So that as you meditate on what Christ has done in your life, you would be driven by God's mercy you would be directed by God's spirit to give your life wholly to him out of devotion to God. That your hands and your mind, that your feet and your stomach, that all of you would be holy and devoted to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for the suffering that he endured for our sin. We thank you for the cleansing that he has provided for our lives. We thank you for the motivation that you provide us by your spirit, for the direction that your word gives us. And so would you move in us as individuals and as a corporate body to give our bodies to you as a life of true worship. Thank you that you don't want us just to know the gospel but that you want us to experience it in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.